0: Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor and founder of the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute.
1: Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Out of the Question podcast. For many who know me, they are familiar with me as a storyteller thanks to God placing me in a very interesting household as a child, coupled with being able to see the humor and lessons in many life occurrences, I have learned to frame an account by giving the relevant and necessary details for any given audience to achieve an understanding of why certain elements of the story are important. By contrast, I've watched many a person attempt to tell a story But get so weighed down with unnecessary and irrelevant details that their listeners never hang in long enough to hear the main point. My guest today has written a book that basically relates stories, ones that I am very familiar with. However, after going through his book, I realized that my understanding of these accounts was greatly diminished because I was missing the context of persons, places, and relevant details along with the economic circumstances surrounding these accounts. Jerry Boyer, author of the book, The Maker Versus the Takers, what Jesus really said about social justice and economics, has been a life-changing book for me to go through. And for those who know me, I'm not one for false praise. In truth, it ranks up there with another life-changing book, the Institutes of Biblical Law by R.J. Rush Dooney. I have come to understand and be grateful that the Lord gives us the gifts of those who don't make up new ideas, but reveal them to us in such a way as to improve our fulfillment of the Great Commission in our service to the Kingdom of God. Jerry, thanks for appearing on the Out of the Question podcast.
0: Thank you for the invitation and also for your very kind words, especially a comparison to uh, Institutes of Biblical Law, which is a monumental achievement. That uh, I believe I first read when I was nineteen years old. Uh, really opened me up to the idea that there are <laughs> there are things to learn. From the first two thirds of the Bible, uh, (laughs) against um, you know the general evangelical tradition that uh, God really starts speaking only in the last third.
1: Exactly. Now you have many themes that you've weaved throughout this book, and to be honest, I'm at a bit of a deficit as I listened to the book on Audible, but I don't actually have a hard copy to go back and pull out quotes. Although I do plan to remedy that situation. As an aside. There were plenty of jobs around my home that I have neglected to do for quite some time, but got around to because I was listening to the book as I was cleaning out the oven or a closet. So the house is in better shape for me having listened to your book. And as I Hmm. said, I'm in better shape as well. But I took a lot of notes to uh, make sure that I went over with you the things that I thought were particularly important. But to start off, Give my audience a brief overview of who you are and what questions and issues you purposed to deal with in writing this book.
0: Well, I'm a uh, Christian and a husband and a father and now a grandfather. And by profession, I'm an economist. And before I converted to Christianity, I was a Marxist. And so in converting to Christianity, it was natural for me to shift my economics, to associate Marxists and socialist economic dogma with atheism. And then when I became a Christian, it was natural for me to reject the economics which accompany atheism. The idea being that a plan for the world is an inescapable concept, and that if we don't have a God who's a planner for the world, then we're going to go for the next best thing, which is the state. And that human, human nature simply cannot tolerate a planless um, world. So that happened when I was about 19 years old, and I'm 58 now. So I've been uh, thinking about Christianity and economics for quite some time. And more from the standpoint of, say, a biblical worldview, and how it applies to economics. And although that's fine, it's a fine thing to apply a biblical worldview to economics, I found that I didn't think that was satisfactory in that a biblical, you read the Bible and you summarize it in a worldview, and then you apply that summarized worldview to a particular discipline. And what that does is that leaves the Bible kind of filtered out a bit and a bit silenced. It can only speak through abstractions. So what I tried to do is open the New Testament and ask, is Jesus saying something about economics? And if so, what is he saying? And what I asked God to do is to get get me past the process where I was asking Jesus the questions that I wanted answers to instead of asking Jesus to tell me what questions he wanted me to ask of the text and those might seem like uh, that might seem like a small difference but to me that's a huge difference so the conversation that that we've had w- with christians is we have this ongoing debate about socialism and capitalism and so we're going to go interrogate the text to find ammunition for our fight now i'm on the free market side so i would interrogate the text to find out you know to prove that jesus wasn't a socialist and to prove that he was a capitalist. And then there's people on the left who do the opposite. And although I think the free market types like me were more right, we were still basically saying, Jesus, I'm going to tell you what you're going to talk to me about.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: As opposed to reading the gospels, reading the text, reading the details, and letting Jesus and the Bible speak for itself. And so that's something I wanted to do as a research project. I wanted to really know, you know, my wife and I did a lot of this study together and our prayer was, we want to really know what you're saying. And in order to really know what you're saying, we have to kind of put our questions aside for a moment and see what questions you, God, are answering in the Bible. And then later on, we can apply it to socialism versus, cap- uh, socialism versus capitalism, et cetera. Right, right, um, right. Now, that was never an idea for a book. I have a friend in publishing who called me and said, hey, I want to do a book with you. And I resisted the idea of a book on this because books are hard work. They Books are almost always sub-minimum wage labor uh, when you account for all the work that goes into them. And in my experience, books with shallow ideas sell very well and really good books have trouble getting any market share. But eventually, I gave in. And the other thing is, there is this thing where if you really love ideas and you really think they're true, it's painful to see them, you know, to see people respond to them in public in ignorant or foolish or mocking ways. And I wanted to avoid all that. Uh, But anyway, we prayed it through, and we ended up writing a book about it, and it has been well received. So at least it's not been has not been trodden underfoot, and the reviews have been good, and the sales have been reasonably good. So. That's who I am. And that's why I wrote this book.
1: Okay. Well, hopefully uh, in the last two weeks, because I actually first heard of you when I interviewed Gary DeMar of American Vision, and he said, you have to read this book and you have to interview this man. And you know what? I will take Gary DeMar's suggestions because he doesn't probably throw them around any, um, you know, it's not like if you have nothing else to do someday, do this. He was saying, you should do this. And so I did. And I have recommended it to no less than 20, 25 people as I started it, in the middle of it, and then when I finished it. But something that immediately came out to me when I started reading it is your observation that we overlook and we pass by certain elements in the gospel accounts with kind of like, yeah, 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 I know this. But if they were included in the gospel accounts, they were included for a reason. And I never asked myself the question, and this was my aha moment, Jerry, is like, why didn't I ever care about the names, the places, the the circumstances, um, what people were wearing or not wearing? Why didn't that ever matter to me? And I think you point out is because we've taken the gospel and made it a very Personal thing, like our personal relationship with Jesus Christ, rather than an outline on how we should live. And you made the analogy, and I happen to live in Silicon Valley. So you said if you were giving an account of something, it would be an important detail to say it happened in Silicon Valley, as opposed to Appalachia or as opposed to Hawaii. In other words, we would have certain reference points with these places that would augment the story. I'm just curious, when did that observation become really clear to you to realize that these are major aspects of the gospel accounts, not minor ones?
0: I think there there were steps in that process. One of them was looking at the account of Jesus's encounter with the rich young ruler and noticing the occupation ruler and saying, this is here for a reason. Because everything in the Bible is there for a reason. What is the reason? So that made me aware of occupation and then, you know, sort of proximity culturally and also geographically to Jerusalem. Uh, But so that started to open things up a little bit more. Then another breakthrough for me was when uh, Father Jay Geisler mentioned to me the emerging literature about the city of Sepphoris, all the archaeological findings of the past 30, 40 years. Sepphoris is a city that was very near to Nazareth, or probably might be better to say Nazareth was very near to Sepphoris. Sepphoris was a city, Nazareth was a village. So Nazareth would have been sort of in the outskirts, kind of an exurb, within commuting distance, as we say in modern times. And so I thought, wait, something's going on here. And and, and then as I learned more about Sepphoris and learned that it was a market center, learn more about its economy, it began to occur to me that Jesus would have been around finance a lot. Why? Because Jesus and his foster father were, were builders. He, he was a tecton. And this is like a master builder. And Sephiroth underwent a, a gigantic building boom while Jesus was a young man. And so it's almost inconceivable that jo- Joseph and son or Joseph and foster son builder would have just limited themselves to fixing doors and building tables in Nazareth you know a small village as opposed to you know going for a one and a half hour walk to one of the great building projects of their time where there would have been good wages and a lot of a lot of work to do so then that started to wake me up to you know, sort of the galilean economy the nazareth economy and all of the rest of it so that that uh, that caused the beginning of a shift then i i read um uh, david fincy's book uh, christian origins in the ancient economy where he talks more about the galilean economy and that had more of an influence and then the two volume work on galilean archaeology and then i started comparing that to what's in josephus and then tacitus and the rest and by by then i was off to the races and understanding that we had different economies in different parts of the gospel accounts, and that those different economies illustrated, they provided meaningful background to Jesus's economic commentary.
1: And so as you proceed through the book, you start not only noting the occupation or who Jesus is talking with at any given time, whether it's a scribe, Pharisee, a Roman, But you also relate where that conversation takes place and how Jesus's words, not that they contradict each other, but his emphasis is very different whether he's in Galilee or whether he's in Jerusalem.
0: Very different, right? So Galilee is a province, the center of which was Sepphoris at some points and Tiberius and others. Judea is a province and the center was always Jerusalem. And they had, they had significantly different economies. The Galilee economy was more decentralized, lower tax. For instance, you didn't have the tribute tax there, uh, the Roman tribute tax, and you did in Judea. So that was a hot button issue. And so that's, that's one of these little things that maybe we ignore when some of the scribes, religious leaders, ask Jesus, a Galilean, about paying tribute to Caesar. There's a little background here. Jesus is from a province that didn't have to pay tribute to Caesar. They were in a province that, because of past mismanagement, uh, and I would argue the judgment of God, that they had power taken from them and they had to pay tribute to Caesar. So these are all different things. You mentioned Silicon Valley. So if, if I tell you, if, if you read a modern novel and somebody is in Silicon Valley, and they meet somebody who's in a mansion, but they're wearing a t-shirt and they're in a Prius, but somebody else is driving. You know, you kind of, what does this guy do for a living? Is he a neurosurgeon? Probably not. He probably works in the technology industry. If you're you're on Wall Street, no t-shirt, $4,000 suit, big building, uh, maybe a town car. Is this somebody who's a very successful farmer? Probably not. He almost certainly works in finance. So if we're reading a novel like that, and then some rabbi is having a a conversation with that person in Wall Street, and he uses some analogy about trading, we'll get that, right? But if someone were reading that novel 2,000 years from now, and there were no annotations, they wouldn't have any idea what's going on. Right. Well, we're reading a 2,000-year-old novel. It's a true novel, but it's still a novel in that it's well-written, and it's providentially a novel written by God in the life of Jesus, we're reading a 2000 year old novel and we don't get those cultural references. So we skim over them. I mean, what else would you do? Right. Capernaum, Bethsaida, Bethel, Beth this, Beth that. We just, we don't know what to do with those, with those details. They're not part of our ingrained context. Like when we read literature from our own period. But the point is that when you actually go in there and do that, you see that Jesus Nowhere denounces wealth in any of his encounters in the Gospels in Galilee, where you have a fairly entrepreneurial and decentralized social order and a sort of coming up economy. And all of his confrontations with wealthy people about wealth occur in Judea and especially in Jerusalem. And there do not appear to be any exceptions to that. In terms of personal interactions, like Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler, Zacchaeus the tax collector, and later with the, with the money changers. But even in rhetoric, the differences between the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain, which are given in different locations to different audiences, and the Sermon on the Plain is hard on woe unto ye wealthy, and the Sermon on the Mount doesn't have any denunciation like that at all. Even going on to Mary's song, the Magnificat, which in the Judean hillside, given to a member of the elite, includes economic pronouncements about the rich going away empty. And that pattern, as far as I can tell, and no one has been able to give me an
1: exception, that pattern holds 100% in the gospel accounts. So what you're doing is you're saying that the gospel writers had lots of things, even John says, "There's, there's so much I could include, I wouldn't have enough space to include everything, but we are left with this very clear picture that says, if it was included here, there must be a reason.
0: Yes, absolutely. John says all the books in the world could not contain it. It's like, that sounds like hyperbole in some sense, because you can fit a lot of books into the world. But I think this is partly saying God had to come as a human being because no book could contain him. Even the perfect Torah could not contain him. A person, he needed to be a person, a person in the world. And even then the world could not contain him, could not comprehend him. Um, so that, um, that's kind of a theological side point. Um, but talking about books, books were expensive. So there isn't a lot of waste in ancient literature. Ancient literature is written in a highly compact way. We have Stephen King novels or you know, Harry Potter novels you know, that are 2000 pages long. And you know, uh, that's because printing is cheap now, right? Um, right. Our best sellers are frequently very long books. But printing wasn't, there wasn't any printing. It was done by hand. The materials were were expensive and the labor was expensive. It's so expensive that they ran their words together. They didn't even have space for spaces between words. And so that indicates how precious a commodity books were. Therefore, why in the world would they waste words? And of course, the Holy Spirit doesn't waste his breath. Uh, So it's incumbent upon us to say, okay, what does it mean that this happened in Bethany, you know, there's, uh, he, Jesus ascends in, in either from or in proximity to Bethany. Well, What is Bethany? Well, Bethany, Eusebius says, um, translates as house of the poor. So there's something going on here that's economic. Uh, I don't think it's Marxist class warfare, but something's going on, or Jesus is born in Bethlehem, Bethlehem, the house of bread. Well, what does it mean that he was born there? What was their economy? Well, their economy, interestingly enough, is they bred sheep to be exported to Jerusalem for the process of sacrifice. So Jesus was born in a town that where the main industry was the breeding of sheep to be used in the sacrificial system. He was he, There was an appropriateness to his birth there. But if we don't know what Bethlehem, our associations with Bethlehem are Christmas cookies, (laughs) uh, you know, and uh, silent night and, you know, nice little Christmas pageants. That wasn't their association. So in order to read the Gospels in the context, we have to get back into their thought world and understand, you know, what Bethlehem was or Ani, house of the people, house of the poor, or what did they do in Capernaum? How about the wedding at Cana? Well, what was the industry at Cana? Turns out it's really important. Uh, they made stone jars for, the, for purification purposes and exported them around the region. So all of these details matter. And once the, the details, all, all I did was some spade work, really. Um, you know, just saying, here are the details. Here's what we know from Philo. Here's what we know from archaeologists. Once those details are available, the story kind of tells itself. I mean, the, 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 the Bible really, it, it's, it, makes, a, it makes sense common sense once we've been given essentially the geographic and economic annotations.
1: And that's what really, I think, was life-changing for me, because I realized that in the 30-plus years that I've been a believer, that I would read the gospel accounts over and over again, and I never asked the question, what happens at Capernaum? What happens at Bethesda? Things like that. And so I, it was more like I was hitting myself up against the head saying, how come you never ask these questions? And, and another theme you bring out. Hey, and- let me
0: stop you for a second. Sure. And so let's look at uh, Capernaum and, and uh, Bethesda or Bethsaida. It, uh, why why do the um, early apostles or disciples sometimes appear to be from Capernaum and sometimes appear to be from Bethsaida? Well, You know, we'll have scholars who will tell us uh, contradictions in the gospel text. Uh, No, there's, you know, by moving from Capernaum to Bethsaida, they would have decreased their tax bill. And these were small business owners. So they wouldn't have had to cross the border and pay essentially the commuter tax. So there's economics going on here. And there's common sense. And that feels feels non-spiritual to us. Therefore, we're not really open, open to economic motives uh, being something relevant here. But, and they were both booming towns. They both were fishing industries. These were not subsistence fish, fishermen. They were export fishermen. And you know, there was also an export of fishing gear. Uh, so this there would have been a fair amount of wealth. But there also are tax consequences when you move from Philip to um, uh, to Herod's um, jurisdiction. I'm sorry, I cut you off. But when you no, 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 that's exactly
1: house. the kind of thing that's important because if you miss those things, it'd be like people who decide to live in a state because there's no income tax, as opposed to states that have an income tax. So Exactly. People make those decisions all the time, or lately, you know, mask, you have to wear a mask or you don't have to wear a mask. People make decisions very much for economic reasons, and they're not necessarily selfish reasons. They're practical reasons.
0: Yeah. And apparently, uh, including Peter and Andrew.
1: Right. Okay. Another theme that I, again, I know that the doctrine of the faith says Jesus is fully God and fully man but I'm not sure I appreciated the degree to which he was fully man until you start talking about Mary, his mother, a knowledgeable woman about current affairs and the economic situation as evidenced in the Magnificat, but that she would have been a very strong influence in his life in terms of the things that he gave priority to. Would you describe that a little bit?
0: Well, yes. I mean, first of all, our earliest traditions show that Mary was raised in Sepphoris, born and raised in Sepphoris. If, they're, if those are true, and I don't see any reason to doubt them. I, sometimes I think that there's a Protestant tendency to play down church traditions because Catholics tap, tap into them. But I see no reason to demote Eusebius or other early church writers beneath, say, pagan historians in terms of their reliability. So the earliest accounts we have, I mean, it's not scripture, but it's history. So the earliest accounts we have from faithful Christians are that Mary was was a Sephorian. So that means sophistication. They had banks. They, at least at some point, had theaters, amphitheaters. There's some debate about when that was, but they were at least culturally sophisticated enough that if they didn't have amphitheaters in Jesus's time, they had them after, Right. So there was a demand for that, which would explain why actually I think we find Jesus quoting, you know, literary classics. Um, How could this alleged country bumpkin from from Appalachia, you know, from from Nazareth know these things? Well, because he because he was around it and she his mother was around it. I mean, we don't think that Jesus was born grown up. You know, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. Did Jesus teach himself to read? Did Jesus teach himself how to operate a saw? No, he's fully human. So he would have learned things from Joseph and he would have learned things from Mary. And one thing I find very interesting is Josephus said that there was widespread literacy in Galilee, but so far I can't find in any of the archeological studies I've read, and that's a lot of them, we haven't found any schools. So we have widespread literacy and we don't have schools. So um Oh, who's the who's the name of the author? A, a Trojan Horse, NEA. Oh, um, Sam
1: Blumenfeld.
0: Sam Blumenfeld, right? So, paging the late Sam Blumenfeld. We <laughs> we had widespread literacy, and we didn't have government schools. We might not have had any schools at all. We have found little what they call ABC diaries, you know, little McGuffey readers in the in the dust uh, up there. So, it seems to me that the base case would be that Jesus was homeschooled by Mary, and we definitely see influence, and then. Once you have that, then you can look and say, well, let's, let's try that. So my wife and I took the Magnificat, the economic pronouncements of the Magnificat, put them in a little like columns next to what Jesus said about economics in the Sermon on the Plain, and they parallel one another very closely. So apparently he honored his father and his mother, and, and she was a deep thinker over and over again. We're told in the Gospels that she, po- she thought about it. She pondered this in her heart. In fact, I think one of the contrasts between the account of the Annunciation to Mary and the Annunciation to Zechariah is, read the, read the text carefully, when Gabriel appears to Zechariah, Zechariah answers right away. In the account of, of him speaking to Mary, Mary stops and thinks and then answers. So I think she was a thinker. She was a deep thinker. The scripture pretty much tells us that. Um, And I think she influenced him. And if if that sounds weird to us, it means that to some degree, we're not really incarnationalists. We really think of Jesus as fully God and mostly man, not fully God and fully man, because men, good men learn from their mothers and fathers.
1: Exactly. And, you know, Many heresies grew up that basically said just that. He was God moving around this human body, but we're not going to give Jesus proper attribution for the fact that somebody had to teach him how to walk. He wasn't born walking. He wasn't born learning how to, as you put it, use a saw.
0: Yes, exactly. Um, So what is the, well, isn't it the um, Chalcedon? You're named after it, um, that that says he is a a like us in all ways except sin. Or maybe that's the Athanasian Creed. No, no, you're right.
1: But the Chalcedon Creed established Jesus as fully God and fully man, and the basis on which men can be free. That this incarnational event, this discontinuity with from the beginning to that point, is that not that men become God, but that God became man. Yes,
0: and the natures are not mixed. So we don't have a Jesus who has a human nature that has like a little magic divinity mixed into it so that he has some powers, but not others, or he's smarter, you know, no, the human nature is fully human and being fully human, it's limited and being limited it, he had to learn Uh, the the human nature is not a separate person. That would be Nestorianism. But it's a separate nature, and that nature learns. And so I would argue that when we say that God took on a human nature, that does not mean he just took on a human body. I think that's the heresy of Apollinarianism. But it doesn't just mean he took on a human individual, because we all know that we're part of a community, the the paradox of the one and the many. Jesus isn't just an individual. No one's just an individual. We're individuals, yes, but we're also parts of society. So if, if God, the second person of the Trinity, is taking on humanity, he's taking on a body, a soul, an occupation, a village, a nation, a world, um, all an economy. All of that is part of the Incarnation.
1: So given what you said, why was it sort of derisive to say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I've
0: really struggled with that, and I don't have a firm answer, but I think there, there's a couple of answers. One could be uh, associations with revolution, with violent revolution. I mean, that's generally a Galilean issue. The other could be that Nazareth was, you know, uh, somewhat backward compared to the uh, Sea of Galilee towns, which were really booming as opposed to um, upward. So I, I would say that Nazareth, um, there, there's, there was this idea for so long that Nazareth was a poor town. We now know that's not true, but it wasn't necessarily a rich town either. So I'm not sure, I'm not 100% sure why Nathaniel is saying that. Those are two possible explanations and if someone has other ideas, I would love to hear them. It's, it's one of the reasons I don't really address that one. I, I, don't have a, I don't have a firm answer. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Come and see. So, but let, let me take it at least this far. They were very aware of geography, even if we're not. So if it's important to Nathaniel that Jesus is from Nazareth, then it ought to be important to us that Jesus is from Nazareth because we're, we're, it helps us get into their thought world. If it's important for the religious leaders that Jesus is from Galilee, so much so that when Nicodemus says, hey, you know, we should follow the Torah on this and have witnesses, what do they say? Are you a Galilean too? <laughs> their contempt for Galilee was a big part of the story. The different accents, all of this is a really big part of the story. So I don't have a definitive answer. I have my guesses about what Nathaniel is saying there, but let's at least take this Um, at least let's take this as strong, that geography mattered to them. Therefore, geography matters in the gospel accounts.
1: Well, I mean, I know in my own life, growing up on the East Coast, I grew up in New York and I went to schools and there were the Irish and there were the Italians, predominantly in the school I went to. And it was not uncommon for there to be jesting kind of like, well, yeah, that's just the way the Italians are or something like that. So it could be jest. It could could also be that's just how people talk then because people talk that way now.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Could just be regular regional jesting. And Jesus doesn't seem to take offense. In fact, he compliments him. Here is a true Israelite in whom there is no guile. Although Jesus might be jesting back. You know, he might be saying, (laughs) yeah, uh, you're a real Israelite. I mean, Jesus is kind of hard on Israelites. It's a wicked and twisted generation. So it might be a little bit of a jab back. Oh, Nazareth, nothing good comes from there. Oh, yeah. So let's say, you know, I'm um, I, I'm, I live in Pittsburgh. I'm from um, the Lehigh Valley area. I've sometimes picked up an attitude of geographical snobbery. I remember I was speaking at a, at a personal gathering in Connecticut a few years ago. Everyone there worked in New York, so big finance people. And I, against my expectation, I was invited there for dinner. Someone, the, uh, the host, asked me to get up and give a speech you know, impromptu. So I did that. And uh, it went over well, and a little later, after dinner, I heard some of his neighbors saying, pointing at me, I overheard them saying, where'd you get this guy? And the host said, Pittsburgh, who knew? (laughs) Uh, And so I felt that going to D.C. or, uh, you know, dealing with colleagues in San Francisco or whatever that, you know, can anything good come out of Pittsburgh? Yeah. Um, so I could have said if I if I wanted to like, interact, I could have turned and said, yeah, you're a real New Yorker, yeah. meaning I know you think that the world ends, um, you know, you don't go any further west than the uh, <laughs> than the West End. So something like that might be going on. Yeah. So, you yeah. know, you know, may the Holy Spirit enlighten us and help us to understand that, because that's a good question that I've wanted to have a firm answer to for some time.
1: Right. Now, let me just tell you of a misunderstanding I had when Gary told me to get the book. So I found it, but I was reading the title wrong. I was reading it, The Makers, plural, versus The Takers. And since I was listening to the book, it's not the same as when you pick up a book and you see the cover every time you pick up the book. And I was thinking that the thesis of this book was going to be entrepreneurs as opposed to status government officials. And I was well into the book thinking like, okay, Jerusalem, I'll make that like Washington, DC and what attitudes I have. But then I actually looked at the title and it's not the makers versus the takers. So you were not setting up class warfare. You were saying the maker, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity versus the people who were the takers. And it again, right in the middle of it is like, wait a minute, maybe I'm not really getting what he's saying. And then you started introducing how and why Jesus was criticizing the leaders who were religious leaders and civil leaders kind of combined together. And I began to have a greater appreciation of why they hated him so much.
0: Yes, so I'm glad you brought that up about the title. I there there is there was is already a phrase out there, makers versus takers, right? And it's a conservative phrase, and I don't have a problem with it. I mean, there are productive classes um, in our country, and there are people who's uh, who make a living by extracting the wealth from other people. Um, so we can talk about who that might be, right? Um, but that, that clearly is a dynamic. So there are producers and extractors. So I think there's even a couple of books, makers versus takers. So I was kind of punning on that a little bit by saying that just like now in, in second temple Judaism, first century Israel, we did have extractive classes and productive classes that Jesus is coming along and defending the productive classes against the extractive classes but he himself is also a maker. So he has a natural, also supernatural, affinity with makers because the second person of the Trinity made the world. All all three persons, but that includes the second person. So so Jesus's father is a maker. Jesus's um, um, foster father was also a maker. And I think that's not coincidental. I mean, um, God could have become incarnate as a philosopher. Aristotle said, you've got three kinds of knowledge. You've got theoria, that's philosophy. You've got praxis, that's leadership. And you've got techne, that's, that's a servile art, that's builder. And the, you know, the first one is the best, and the second one is the second best, and the third is the, is the worst. Well, Yahweh upends that by coming a, as a techne, as a maker. And I think he is that—that uh, that is a rebuke. Um, it's, an inhi- it's, it's an inherent rebuke to the pagan worldview that commerce and physical activity and technology, techne, tecton, these are all related, um, are inferior uh, as as opposed to uh, pure theory. So I—I I, so I think that yeah, I'm trying to make a pun, and I don't think it really worked very well. I think a lot of people get confused and say. I've done a lot of interviews where people quote the book as the makers versus the takers, and mm-hmm. I understand that. So I'm not sure that I succeeded in giving it a good title. But if you're, if you're trying to get at what I'm getting at, I'm, say, I'm taking this idea of the makers versus takers and then say, Jesus, a maker is siding with makers against takers.
1: And I think I think your subtitle maybe clarifies it in a way. Subtitles are very useful that way. So you try to have a short title to catch people's attention, but the subtitle often exposes the thrust of the book, which it did.
0: It does, but I can tell you that the subtitle also became a, a trigger event for some conservatives. And I think this is worth talking about. The Bible has a justice message. The Bible you know, it talks about tzedakah, justice, righteousness. And it's not just about righteousness for individuals. It ha- there's a just social order. So the Bible has a quote unquote social justice message. Now, now something happened in our lifetime where Marxists grabbed that phrase and made it their own. So now Christians feel like we can't talk at all about anything other than individual justice. So we like individualize the gospel. So I had people that were angry at me when they read the title or something. Oh, this book is woke. Um, and I'm really frustrated by that because it's yet another retreat. It's another, it's, it's, that's ours. Social justice comes from conservative Christians uh, in the 1800s and it was against socialism. And what happens is the left comes along and they take a phrase or they take a symbol like the rainbow. First, the New Agers took the rainbow and then it's, like, oh, rainbow, can't use rainbow. You must be a New Ager. Or, you know, you, you, can't, you can't say social justice. You must be a Marxist. We keep retreating. As they keep taking language, we keep giving it to them. So I wanted to take social justice back, but that apparently
1: was a challenge for some conservative readers. Well, um, for this reader, it was very useful And uh, as I said, I've recommended it to people. And I said, please read this because I want to have a conversation with you about this book. But let's talk about Jesus's parables. Now, you make the point that the tendency in 20th century, 21st century, is to take every account or lesson in scripture and apply it personally, which is a good thing. We should apply things personally. But if you limit it to personal, then you miss the social order that Jesus was rebuking at his time and positing one that they had forgotten. And so you spend a lot of time talking about the poor tithe. You talk about the forgiveness of debts for the sabbatical year. Mm -hmm. And you talk about the phrase, Jesus saying, the poor you'll always have with you. And to me that was I actually rewound it to listen to that again <laughs> because it was that useful. So I realize I'm not asking you to write to, you know, tell the whole book here, but summarize so that it might tweak people's interest to actually go and pick it up.
0: So the poor you shall always have with you. Shall I start with that? Sure. I'm convinced, and by the way, I, you know, I thought, oh, I've uncovered something. And then I looked at a whole bunch of old Bibles and the cross references, and I'm not the first person to see this. I'm just the first person. I saw it and then found out other people had seen it. It's often cross, um, cross-flagged with Deuteronomy 15. So in Deuteronomy 15, God says, I want you to obey my law. And if you obey, um, you'll be prospered and there will be no more poor among you. But you will not obey, so therefore you won't prosper, and you will, you'll have the poor with you always. So I think there's a tendency to universalize Jesus as the poor ye shall always have with you, so, so poverty is just baked into the cake for all of human history, no matter whether we obey the gospel and follow the law of God, and you know, et cetera. It's just a structural, we just have structural poverty, and that's the human condition as opposed to a specific rebuke to Israel, echoing God's, it's the bookend. In Deuteronomy 15, God says, the poor you will always have with you because you will not obey. And Jesus says to a wicked and adulterous generation in the context of Israel. Remember, Jesus said, said, I was sent to the house of Israel. Now I'm gonna send you out to Samaria and out to the world, but I was sent to the house of Israel. So I think we have to start with an exegetical default that if Jesus is saying something, he's saying it to Israel. So I think the poor you will always have with you, especially in the context, this is in the context of um, um, Judas Iscariot, who I think is a stand-in for the temple elite. and We can talk about that more if you like. I think that Jesus is rebuking the Judean elite, saying the poor you will always have with you just like I said, as the, as the word way back in Deuteronomy 15,
1: yeah, because you're not obeying. And see, that will make no sense to anybody who has not been informed that the Bible had a limitation on debt amongst believers for sure, and that at the end of six years, debts were to be forgiven. So when we talk about Jesus coming to pay our debt, if mm. we... Extract it from an economic perspective, we're missing why he was, as I said, rebuking the religious leaders. They weren't forgiving debts. So the poor not only remained poor, but they kept getting more and more in debt because these debts were not forgiven.
0: Right. The debts were not forgiven and there were workarounds on interest. So um, the VIG, as they say, kept running. By the way, this, I didn't want to go here. This is one of these places where Jesus took me where I didn't want to go <laughs> because I had tended to associate the Shemitah and Jubilee uh, laws with uh, socialism because early in my spiritual formation, when I was a young college student, there were conferences like the Jubilee Conference where a whole lot of the speakers were socialists and they would argue from, from the Jubilee laws. Uh, I, and um, you know, I think that's something, Ron Sider made a lot out of the Jubilee laws, for instance. Right. So that's one of those areas, like a little bit of a trigger for me, just like social justice is a trigger. It's like, ah, uh-uh, I don't want I don't want Jesus to be affirming the Shemitah laws. But again, you know, one of us gets to be Lord and it's not me. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, my reading of the text is that he is very engaged on these Shemitah laws. And once you see that, a lot of the text opens up so one of the things to understand is that debt forgiveness is not, you know, we think of debt forgiveness as maybe student loan forgiveness or, you know, maybe like you live too high and you buy a plasma screen TV um, and then you can't pay it back. But th- these debts were largely a matter of taxes. You, you owed taxes. You couldn't pay the taxes. So the tax collector would take a note instead Uh, So then you're indebted to the tax collector. Okay, so then what happens when you hit the sixth year? Because they all knew about those rules. Well, Hillel had a brilliant workaround. What he said is, well, these debt forgiveness laws, they only apply to individual Israelites. They're never applied, say, to the temple. So if the temple buys the paper, buys the debt, the temple after the sixth year, the temple can keep collecting because the temple isn't, isn't um, bound by the Shemitah. So if I'm a tax collector and I've been running the interest on you for six years, it's like, oh no, the cash cow is gonna, gonna get shut off. What I can do is go to the temple and sell that paper to the temple at a price that represents the future payments, you know, a, kind of a discount of the future payments. And then the temple becomes the vig. And no, no wonder Jesus gets so angry at the temple. And no wonder um, it gets destroyed because instead of being a place of liberation from sin, it became the central place for the violation of Torah and the central place of exploitation. And part of that is the ignoring the um, the Shemitah rules. And And when Jesus has this conversation with Peter, about forgiving 70 times seven, I think most of your listeners are going to associate 70 times seven with, the, with, the, with, the, um, uh, with uh, Daniel's prophecy about 490 years. I mean, that certainly would have been the strong association then. Right. 70 right. times seven was like a big number you know, in Second Temple Judaism. And they understood, the Israelites understood uh, through Jeremiah that it was their violation of the Torah at the, at the point of the Shemitah that was the reason for their exile. So they strongly associated the coming of the Messiah with the restoration of the Torah and the forgiveness of debts. So Jesus says, forgive 70 times seven, and then immediately rolls into a parable about debt, a parable about debt that involves the number 10,000 talents, which is an impossibly large number for any personal dealings. And so commentators say this must be an exaggeration. And I say, no, it's a failure of imagination, commentators. This is a macroeconomic scale number. So this would, so I think Jesus, Jesus knows what he's about. Jesus is saying, you know, God's going to, God forgives 70 times seven. You need to forgive debts. God has forgiven you for the fact that you haven't forgiven 10,000 talents worth. You haven't forgiven You haven't forgiven essentially your your, um, national debt. So here's what's going to happen. You are going to be handed over to the torturers, like it says in that parable. Mm -hmm. Well, what happens in 70 AD is Jerusalem is surrounded. Wealthy members of the Judean elite escape from Jerusalem. There were rumors among the Roman soldiers that the Judean elite elite had swallowed gold to smuggle it out of Jerusalem. So they start cutting open the wealthy Judean elite looking for gold. They're handed over to the torturers to extract every last penny. So we have moralized and personalized a parable that I think ha- its main point of reference. Now we can personalize it afterwards, right? Forgiving mm-hmm. debts, forgiving, forgiving sins, you know, forgiving slights, But I think the main referent here is essentially a national debt Torah uh, economic issue.
1: And what really, I started putting things together as I was reading it. So when you look in James's epistle, where he describes pure religion, the focus is very much on widows and orphans. And you go back to the parable of the widow woman asking for help and the judge not paying attention. And suddenly you see that jesus's audience would very well know who he was singling out at first they didn't and and as you point out he has to explain in private to his disciples what various parables mean but towards the end of jesus telling these stories parables whatever his listeners would know who he was talking about and his, you know, the, his, the objects of his rebuke and condemnation knew that he was talking about them. And that explains why, as I said before, they were so eager and found it necessary to get rid of him.
0: Yes, uh, um, Luke's gospel, it's clear in Luke's gospel when he told essentially his final parable. There's a little mini parable after that, but not even a parable, just like a reference to a pa- the parable of the fig tree. So the, first, the last real parable, substantive parable in Luke's gospel is one that's clearly economic. It's the unfaithful um, vineyard operators. And Luke tells us that, that the religious leaders discerned that he was talking about them and set out to destroy him. So the decision to murder Jesus um, was, I think, economically motivated, not theologically motivated. He had been messing with their theology a lot over the past three years and people got angry. But when he messed with their money, that's when they, decide to, they decided to assassinate him. And you make a really good point. I didn't write about this in the book um, uh, because I didn't really think about it. But the parable of the importunate widow, I think, is giving us a sense of what is emblematic, that the magistrates were a corrupt class, um, systemically a corrupt class. We kind of miss that, like in the in the commentaries, in the um, conversations we have between uh, John the Baptizer and tax collectors, uh, and with their enforcers, the soldiers. John isn't saying, "Hey, you tax collectors, some of you are dishonest, so you the the dishonest among you should start to be honest." And you soldiers, some of you are engaging engaging in defrauding activity, and so that small minority of you should stop. He speaks to them as a group because, in essence, that was part of the business model. That was emblematic of that particular class or or occupation. Um, And I think we can make um, a similar argument about the nature of of magistrates. We have a parable in which a magistrate is corrupt. um, And then later, we have St. James saying to the poor Christians, do not rich men what? Um, do they not defraud you? Same word in Greek that Jesus uses in talking with the rich young ruler and what drag you before the judgment seats. So again, James isn't saying, hey, once in a while, there's a crooked judge. He's saying as a class, the wealthy are defrauding by using the uh, the cor- uh, corrupt magistrates.
1: Yes. Um, I'll just do one last parable that you describe and Again, I was like, how did I never even ask the question? You know, Sam Blumenfeld, you mentioned earlier, used to tell me, you know how much people are learning, not so much by the answers they give, but by the questions they ask. And I sort of felt like, why did I never ask this question? But the parable or the account or the story of the rich man and Lazarus Mm -hmm. and how we see him now, they both have died and he sees Lazarus at Abraham's bosom. But the way he was described before he died, at the time, everybody would have known that's how the high priest dresses. I never put that together.
0: Yeah, well, I think that I'm not sure that translators made it easy for you, and I'm not sure the commentators made it easy, um, because I think that there is a tendency for theologians to reduce... Exegesis down to systematic theology questions, and of course you and I know that systematic theology actually includes politics. But a lot of historic systematic theology is done in complete isolation from politics. So when you look into the details, you see you know details like he the the, the poor man is put at the pulos the porch. Well, that can mean regular porch, but there uh, but that also at least it's not a super common word in the new testament two of the usages are temple one in the gospels uh solomon's temple there's you know jesus is at the porch of solomon's temple the pulos Uh, and then in acts one of the pagan temples you know uh paul is at the at the pulos the uh, porch of the pagan temple. So it's like, hmm, something's going on here, maybe. And Gregory of Nancianus, I think, is the one who got me thinking about this. He's, I think, a church father, the church father who picked up on this, suggesting that this is the the high priest that we're talking about. So it's like, okay, all right, Gregory, let's keep walking in this direction. He wears purple and fine linen, exactly the same Greek words as are used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament to describe the, um, the, the, the garments uh, worn by the high priest or by the priest in general. Uh, so he's wearing purple and fine linen. Okay. He feasts celebratory. This is, a, this is another word that in the Septuagint is associated with religious festivals. He does it, it, it says, you know, daily, but literally it's lampos by lamp. Hmm. There's a lamp. There are lamps in the temple and everyone knew that. This um this man this rich man says, you know, I want to go back to my father's house and I Abraham says, they have the law and the prophets. Well, in the temple they did have the law and the prophets. So this is really looking like we're talking about the temple elite and the high priest and he's dining twice a day and we had morning and evening sacrifices and finally he wants to warn his five brothers. And Josephus tells us that Caiaphas, the high priest at the time of Jesus, uh, married into the family of Ananus that had five sons. So Caiaphas had five brothers. And I've searched Philo and Josephus, and I can't find any reference to anybody else, any other public figure having five brothers. And so that to me, it's, that clinched it. Something really, this is the high priest. But then I think there's another element to this, uh, which is that we really do have a Lazarus. You know, is this a parable or is this not a parable? It doesn't call itself a parable and Christians have thought about it because you know, there might be afterlife doctrines that are riding on it. Uh, it's, it's really kind of interesting because it, it um, kind of straddles story and real life because there really was a Lazarus who died, right? And so what happens is a real Lazarus dies, and this real Lazarus is probably poor. Why do we know that? The Bible tells us he's from Bethany, and Bethany is poor town, literally. So it's a poor town. It's near Jerusalem. The poor town is at the gates, in some sense, of Jerusalem. It's there at the the porch. And this real-life Lazarus, who has the same name as the man in the story, does come back from the dead. And what happens? What do the five brothers do? What does Caiaphas, the high priest, do? If a man comes back from the dead, will they believe? Not only will they not believe, but they use that as a justification to plot against Jesus because they'll, quote-unquote, lose their place. They'll lose their economic status. So this, it just... This this just makes so much more sense as commentary on the high priest and the temple elite compared to any other interpretation of the parable or right.
1: story. Now, I won't ask you to talk about Pontius Pilate now. I want people to read the book. and But you'll discover that even those decisions and the circumstances we will find interesting in terms of why things played out the way they did. And you are not one to deny the sovereignty of God just because Jesus came to die doesn't exonerate those who purposed to kill him. Um they can both exist at the same time 100% without there being any contradiction.
0: Yes, and so I had an experience in which I mentioned uh, to a friend sort of the economic circumstances and financial circumstances. And he said, "Well, Jesus died because it was ordained from the foundation, he's the lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world." Well, yes, So what are you saying? That a spear didn't go into him? Um, I mean, a spear played a role. A cross played a role. A centurion played a role. Uh, So the existence of God's plan does not obviate human responsibility. Now, sometimes God just does things. In theology, that's called monergism. But the gospel account does not give us a monergistic account of the life of Jesus or the crucifixion. Uh, You can argue for monergism in regeneration, right? Um, In in God like changing us, but it, it to me it would be a real stretch to argue for monergism that everybody in the gospel accounts is just passive, being moved around like chess pieces. No, they're acting in what they perceive to be their self interest, and there's nothing impious in 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 pointing out their self interest and how God was able to use their sinful plans to fulfill his righteous plan.
1: Right. Now I won't reveal what you say at the end. You have um, like, what does it matter? What does it matter to me? But what you do say is Christians should be thinking people who ask the why, when, how, and where to things. And the net result is that we will have a better witness to those we go and disciple. And Your book, without calling itself theonomic or even using the word, highlights the fact that God did not come to abrogate the law, to take it away, but to fulfill it. And so Jesus has a very high view of the law, and that's the indictment that he brings against the religious leaders because of their hatred for the law and then making up their own law. So this quote by Spurgeon, really, I was reading it in another context. He says, we must never let it be forgotten Christ's emphasis. The law must be preached for what the law demands of us. The gospel produces in us, else there's no gospel at all. So modern Christians want to divorce the law from the gospel, and it's just not possible.
0: Right. I I, I don't understand how anyone can not understand that Jesus was, among many other things, a Torah observant rabbi. Uh, So if he's sent to the house of Israel, do we really think that he would be sent to the house of Israel to tell them not to obey the Torah that God gave them? Um, That wouldn't make any sense at all. Now, if somebody, you know, so I think there's sometimes there's a tendency to put a barrier between Jesus and the Torah. I don't think that makes any sense at all. Now I think there's another debate, which is how much of that transfers over. How do we build exegetical and hermeneutical bridges from that to us, right? That's, that's The debate should be there. The debate. I, don't, I can't see any debate about whether Jesus is pro-Torah or not. To me, it's a slam dunk case. He's pro-Torah. He couldn't be prophet, priest, and king of Israel if he's not pro-Torah. So then we come on to, all right, then how do we apply that to us? And then there are you know, different historical circumstances. And that's a that's a debate for that the church has been having for a long time. I don't speak to that, but I guess I do speak to it indirectly in the sense that anyone who's going to try to go into Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, and make that the dividing point between some modern era in which the Torah is irrelevant and some era before that, I think isn't really paying close attention to the ministry of Jesus.
1: Exactly. Holding
0: Israel to Israel's law.
1: Yes. So the book is The Maker versus The Takers. I hope listeners that you'll get it, whether you decide to read it or listen to it. But Jerry, I do have a question for you. So when you're not writing books that take you on trails that you didn't necessarily always want to go on, what does Jerry Boyer do day in and day out to make a living and serve the kingdom?
0: I'm an economist. That's my day job. And that's largely a matter of economic forecasting, You know, forecasting growth uh, for the United States and really for all the, econo- all the economies around the world except like really small ones, uh, growth and inflation. Um, I also do analysis relevant to investments. So I help funds make decisions about how to choose different sectors, stocks and bonds, individual companies. So my analysis is very quantitative, but it's fully biblically informed. So it's all kingdom work, but the exegetical work, this stuff that, that I write in books and or columns or et cetera tends to be um, my Sunday work, and the other six days tend to be more analytical, but all of it kingdom work.
1: I'm curious, since my guess is that your six-day jobs or your six days of work don't always just serve Christians, do you find that people who value your opinion in the economic analysis area are interested in what you have to say in the area of the Bible and theology.
0: Yes, I think that I've um, because my um, my quote-unquote day job is highly analytical. I think that's given me a certain amount of credibility with people that I'm a detail person and a, a researcher who's willing to follow the data where it goes, and that I haven't been right about all issues. But in general, I've been right about the direction of the economy with some glaring exceptions. And I think that that has created a certain openness to what I I might say um, about theological issues. I think the other thing that's happened is I think there are a lot of people who are creative and entrepreneurial and innovative and technological, and someone somewhere along the line gave them the, the impression that Jesus didn't like them. (laughs) Um, and that Jesus didn't like the kind of thing they did for a living. And so the church forced them to choose between the church and its presentation of Jesus's message, truncated, and their own created nature. And so you have a lot of people who think that in order to go and build businesses or create new technologies or function effectively in markets, they had to move away from God. And I think what this has been an awakening for a lot of those people is to say, no, no matter what priests or ministers have said to you, if you are created to be an entrepreneur, when you entrepreneur, you're getting closer to him That you're being what he created you to be. So you don't have to choose. Jesus affirms you. See, the, the idea I think in the past has been, if you're a, if you're a religious leader, you're okay. But if you're in the marketplace, you're guilty until proven innocent. Yeah, you can be saved, but it's going to be like dragging a camel through the eye of a needle. Um, so you don't really know. You're guilty until proven innocent. And I think the reality of the gospel text is more like this. Everyone can be saved, but when it comes to wealth, the, guilt, the more guilty until proven innocent class would be religious leaders and political leaders. Yes, yes. Jesus is saying, "You can be saved too. <laughs> um, yes, even even priests can be saved, and even senators, even members, even archons can be saved. But that the class, the classes that are most given to greed, are not entrepreneurial classes. At least going by the pattern of Jesus, but extractive, political,
1: and religious power classes. And that's huge. And I think." Um... It doesn't surprise me that that you might have gotten some, you know, bullets uh, headed your direction because when you try to take and apply the thesis of your book and you start looking around, there are certain things that will come to light and no doubt produce change. Like you said you read Rush Dooney's book when you were nineteen. One of the things, and I had the opportunity to know him in person for 15 years, he always figured he was skimming the surface and that there were going to be gifted people that God had ordained who were going to unearth a lot of things and then bring them to the forefront to help the advancement of the kingdom. And Jerry, I have to say, whether or not that category applies to you with anybody else, it certainly does with me.
0: Well, thank you. Very high praise indeed. Thank you for that.
1: All right. If people want to read stuff you write or want to be in touch with you, how would they do that? I'm pretty easy
0: to find on social media. Just remember that it's B-O-W-Y-E-R. So uh, you know, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter, although that's Jerry Lee Boyer, B-O-W-Y-E-R. Uh, I write uh, columns for townhall.com's finance channel where I'm the editor. Uh, so you can find me there. I'm pretty easy to find. Just, just Google me, Jerry Boyer. Don't forget the W, B-O-W-Y-E-R, and you'll see opportunities for social
1: media connection or reading my columns. And uh, if my experience means anything, you're very willing to communicate and you're rather fast at getting back to people. So um, I don't think anybody who's interested in talking to you will be disappointed
0: no, I, I try to I, I try to respond. Um, I try to respond to anybody who's actually asking questions. You know, some people have like a knee jerk, oh, this is the prosperity gospel, you know, I rebuke thee or some people, you know some <laughs> people just you know they they if somebody isn't like trying to engage,'m i'm I'm, <laughs> I'm not gonna spend a lot of time. But if someone's really if someone wants to know what Jesus thought and said, then we have a commonality. We have a koinonia there and I'll, commun- I'll communicate
1: as much as I can. Well, with- oh, that's great. That's great. Listeners, thanks for joining me. If you have any comments on this podcast or any topics you'd like to see me cover in the future, you can reach me at outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com.
0: Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.